Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. We're back together in Phoenix uh, again after traveling to a wedding. My little brother got married in New Hampshire. If you missed it, we talked about, I talked to my brother for an hour and 45 minutes about <laughs> about space exploration, which actually became uh, pretty topical a week later when President Trump announced his Space Force. Uh, so if you want to listen to part one and part two about uh, the history of exploration, how it relates to space, check that out from, from the last couple episodes. And due to our schedule, me and my dad's schedule issues this summer, him being up, up north and, and me being off for the summer, we've been doing sort of a summer series, uh, episodes on bigger picture questions, not directly related to the news, but uh, we're here together right after the blockbuster news of Justice Kennedy retiring. So we're going to talk today about the Supreme Court, uh, some of the recent decisions that were made, and uh, what this fight is going to look like for the uh, for the new Supreme Court justice. So let's start with this. Let's just reflect on on Justice Kennedy. What kind of justice was Kennedy? Uh, what do you think his legacy is going going to be as a Supreme Court justice? Well, for some time now, um, Justice Kennedy has pretty well decided uh, what the Supreme Court was going to hold on any controversial item. Uh, And uh, he wasn't like Justice O'Connor, who had a comparable role when she was on the court. Justice O'Connor was sort of a centrist um, on most judicial questions. Uh, Kennedy wasn't. He was either decisively on one side or decisively on the other side. On social issues, he tended to be decisively uh, conservative and is the person responsible um, for uh, moving towards declaring uh, gay marriage a constitutional right. Uh, He was a defender of the court's uh, Roe v. Wade uh, abortion decision. But on free speech issues, he was decisively conservative. Um, He was the author of the Citizens United decision, um, which held that businesses and labor unions had a First Amendment right uh, to expend funds on express advocacy Uh, during campaigns. Uh, There were a variety of other free speech and civil libertarian issues um, where he was uh, quite firm. So um, it wasn't that he led the court in the middle. Uh, It tended to be either very liberal or very conservative, uh, depending upon how Justice Kennedy felt about a particular issue. Yeah, it's kind of funny to 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 hear some of the commentary. I'm off for the summer now, so I'm I'm able to watch a lot more uh, cable news than I uh, than I usually do, and it's it's interesting to hear some some people saying, "Oh, he's he gave all these conservative victories," uh, but then there's also the argument that you know he was almost like a balancing center that you had to, to aim for what he was he was going to have to decide. But definitely the most controversial and maybe impactful what his legacy might be is that's the author of that Citizens United uh, 
the tipping vote of that Citizens United decision. Um, that really more liberal-minded people will make the argument that, that that tips the scale, and Bernie Sanders railed about this a lot, that it, that tips the scale to giving corporations uh, a way bigger voice in political matters and elections by being able to donate uh, through you know super PACs and different ways tons and tons of money to, to getting their uh, their side heard more than the than the average person what's your what's your reaction to that to that criticism that that hurts our political process that creates more inequality that benefits corporations a lot more than ordinary people that can't spend a bunch of money and don't have the ability to tap into corporate profits to 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 make political points um, I have a uh, countervailing opinion uh, about the importance of the decision. The movement towards independent expenditure campaigns um, and taking the form of incorporated entities had started well before the Citizens United decision and was accelerating before the Citizens United decision. It really took off as a result of the McCain-Feingold um, campaign finance reform, which limited the amount of money that um, corporations and individuals could contribute to the political parties. And when was that passed? That was a law that was passed? Um, when? Yeah, in the early 2000s. Okay. Um, and, and, and so the independent expenditure movement started then and continued to accelerate. The way in which the advertising took place was it would say... Congressman X is a scoundrel. Um, call him and tell him to quit being a scoundrel. Uh, it was what um, was falsely labeled issue advocacy. All Citizens United did was to permit these entities to call for the vote. So instead of saying Congressman X is a scoundrel, call him and tell him to quit being a scoundrel, you were permitted to say Congressman X is a scoundrel, vote against him on Tuesday. Um, I don't think that's a uh, material difference. Um, and uh, I think you would have seen the increased volume of independent expenditures from both sides of the political spectrum, irrespective of the decision. And I think the decision, given what occurred in the media, uh, was pretty much mandated. I mean, how do you say that, for example, newspapers, um, the Arizona Republic is owned by Gannett Corporation. Gannett is a um, corporation. And uh, we, each election, uh, publish editorials mm -hmm. urging people to vote in a certain way. So how do you distinguish between what media has become uh, and other corporations. Yeah. Uh, why why doesn't XYZ Corporation have the same right to expend corporate funds um, to advocate the election or defeat of candidates that the Arizona Republic does? And then you, you with some conglomerates, for a while, uh, General Electric owned a television station. Yeah. So um, why does General Electric have First Amendment rights that um, some other entity doesn't. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's hard. To, it's hard to draw that line there. And if you say corporations don't have the right to to say what they want, it's hard to draw the line between all those other things. Um, 
then the other part of that is that money, spending money, is a form of, of free speech. So there's kind of two parts to that, that one, corporations are considered people that have the right to free speech and that uh, spending money is a form of free speech. And it's kind of the same thing. If you if you restrict someone's right to spend their money how they want to, uh, that's kind of a limitation on it, on speech it, and other contexts that you could uh, that you could draw down from there. Yeah, the the pernicious part of the rise of independent expenditure campaigns, which as I said, I think is a phenomenon independent of the Citizens United um, decision. Um, is that these independent expenditure campaigns is, are now drowning out what the candidates have to say themselves, which is why I think the remedy um, is to lift restrictions on what can be donated to candidates. What's donated to candidates has to be reported. So you can know who's behind the speech, unlike with a lot of these independent expenditure organizations that uh, don't uh, have to report their donors. And it would give candidates themselves uh, more say uh, in their elections. In some of these highly contested elections, the candidates almost become bystanders yeah. in their own election. And that's particularly important here in Arizona because we've got a contested U.S. Senate race and a contested, three contested congressional races. So and and national independent expenditure money is just going to come flooding in here. So right now, national, you know, rich people from out of state can spend a lot of money to, to send a message that lots of people hear in Arizona. Um, and what you're, what you think is a fix is uh, to, how do you to, to lift right now what what they what they can spend directly themselves is unlimited. What they can contribute to a candidate for a candidate limited. to use is sharply limited. So, so how does it? How does I, it I, I, I favor lifting um, what people can donate to, to candidates. Some of that independent money would flow to candidates. Um, probably it would still be voluminous. Mm -hmm. uh, but what would change is that the amount of speech in which the candidates themselves could engage in would increase and would that st so if you if if you give to a candidate you have to say who you are right and this is correct that's that's one of the problems with these super PACs is that you don't know who's right who's giving to them and they're they're spending tons of money um doesn't that still dis so doesn't that still disadvantage uh doesn't it make it basically that you have to be rich to like get your message out or, or win an election somehow. Well, um, and is that a problem? You, you, it would be more accurate to say you got to have rich people who support <laughs> your point of view, but even that's changing. Uh, with uh -huh. one of the phenomenon of the digital age uh, is that uh, candidates are being capable of raising much larger sums of money. Mm -hmm. Uh, from small donors. Uh, Barack Obama was highly successful at doing that. Bernie Sanders was highly successful uh, at doing that. Um, so uh, it's becoming uh, less true than it used to be. Yeah. But there's no question that um, given the fact that to communicate with voters, you've got to buy advertising or engage in direct mail, um, advantages go to those that can 
attract the funds. Yeah, and you see kind of a counterpoint to that whole money is the only thing that matters thing when you hear you know news like Jeb Bush getting defeated. He got he had all the, he had all the donors. You know Bernie Sanders did uh, a lot better than than expected. Uh, this twenty eight year old uh, woman just won a upset candidate uh, against a. Um, Standing uh, person that was Alexandria uh, Acaras Cortez uh, with you know didn't have, didn't have the, the funding there so you oh. have you have uh, upsets and things happening across well, in, the spectrum. In in addition to it being easier with the internet to raise large sums of money from small donors, it's also through social media less expensive to reach and communicate with voters. Right. So there is kind of a natural somewhat leveling of the field occurring. I still think money matters in in politics. Um, I don't take the position that it shouldn't matter. I mean, yeah. it's, if people have money and that's what they want to spend it on, I think it's their right to do so. So you don't think there should be, like as Bernie Sanders says, like strict limits on how you can, how much money you can spend on, on campaigns? No, I and I think the First Amendment. I think the U.S. Supreme Court is correct that the First Amendment um, prohibits such uh, restrictions. And some more honest liberals have actually proposed amending the First Amendment to permit that. The last thing you want is for government to decide um, who can speak and uh, to what extent they can speak and where they can speak and how they can speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think is 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 a much greater threat to individual liberty uh, than rich people spending their money on politics. I mean, there's a lot of liberal rich people. It's mm-hmm. it's not like there's only one side. This is where Sanders misrepresents things. Uh, in reality, there's a tremendous amount of money on the left uh, as there is on the right. Right. So I want to talk about. Uh, Two more, uh, two more things. One, a couple of the Supreme Court decisions that have that have recently been made, and which ones might be most impactful. Looking forward, then, and then second, the you know the upcoming fight uh, of the uh, the new Supreme Court uh, justice. Uh, so, even though Kennedy has been the deciding vote on um, some social, so more social liberal things like like gay marriage. Um, he recently sided with conserv- the conservative uh, arguments on, on unions. Um, what, what was your kind of takeaway from that? Uh, what kind of impact would that make, the Janus case that, that held that um, public uh, sector unions aren't, are no longer required to um, basically not forced to, to pay dues for um, membership? The argument that was made by the court in upholding the requirement that non-union members nevertheless had to contribute to the union uh, never made sense to me. The one in 77 that was somewhere in that that time frame. Um, The argument was uh, that um, the non-union member uh, benefited from the collective bargaining activities of the union mm-hmm. and therefore should be required to help pay for them. Uh, well, um, 
to me, that's a judgment for the non-union member to make. If the non-union member believes that he is being well represented by the union, then he can join the union. Uh-huh. If he's chosen not to join the union, it's because he doesn't perceive uh, a benefit uh, that's proportional to what he pays. And that always struck me as a um, unfair in uh, a diminution of the liberty of the non-union member. The court uh, struck it down for a different reason, um, primarily, uh, and, and that is that unions are very active political organizations, uh, and the argument was being made that the non-union member was being required to contribute to political speech mm-hmm. and political activity with which the non-union member might disagree. And the court is far more protective of free speech rights than the court has been of economic rights, which is I shouldn't have to pay for something that I don't see a benefit from. Uh, So I think it was correctly decided, uh, but I don't think we should have ever gotten into the business of saying a non-union member who's chosen not to participate nevertheless has to pay for union activities. So what do you make of the, I think one of the biggest arguments that, that the union makes is the free rider issue that we're negotiating, we're bargaining for our collective good and we're going to do that and it's going to benefit everyone regardless of if you, one person chips in or not. So it, <clears throat> isn't there an argument to be made that since we're all benefiting, um, you would just opt out and, and reap the benefit and financially undermine the, the bargaining power of the whole? Well, the, the unions in states that have prohibited um, so-called agency fees required, requiring non-union members to pay for union representation um, is that the unions don't go away. They, they they still exist. They still collectively bargain. Um, uh, they are they are smaller, um, so it will have an impact. Um, but I don't think the union asserting uh, that it is providing benefits for all employees ought to supersede the right of the individual employee to decide that for him or herself. Yeah. Um, the union needs to sell itself yeah. uh, to the employees, not coerce the employees uh, to accepting their argument that they're providing a service from which the employee benefits. Yeah. That sort of assumes the argument that they have to make in order to earn the right yeah. to represent. And I and I think a lot in a lot of ways it might make the union more effective in what and what they do if if they are. Uh, you know, depended on serving serving the people first and foremost, and convincing them uh, to get it in. I think it'll. Um, I, I think it will result in more money being spent on direct services to the employees and less on politics. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so let's let's go to the topic that is probably going to dominate a lot of news coming up, which is the um, Trumps choice for the replacement of Justice Kennedy and then the confirmation battle. The president chooses who's on the Supreme Court. The Senate is supposed to advise and consent. 
um, on that. And the previous choice, uh, Obama chose Merrick Garland uh, as a Supreme Court, but that was in his last year in office. And Republicans had the majority in the Senate, and they said, nope, we're not going to we're not going to confirm this guy. We're going to wait for the election. Uh, a lot of, pretty much every Democrat thought that was not right, that president's constitutional authority to appoint someone, Senate should um, consider the person either way. But McConnell, uh, Senate Majority Leader, won that fight. Uh, Trump picked uh, his pick, uh, Neil Gorsuch, who is a conservative. Um, and now... He's got another one, so I think this is uh, it's an election year, not a presidential election year. But you could arguably make the same point that you know if you're going to say that we should hold off on picking a Supreme Court and let the people decide, it's not that much uh, different now because you might have a different makeup of the Senate, you know, come next year. So um, it seems like Republicans have the raw power just to do it. I mean, it seems like. Uh, you can make whatever argument you want, but do you see them just getting their guy through uh, regardless or girl through regardless? Uh, it, it certainly is Mitch McConnell's intent to do that. He's declared uh, that he will try to get a new justice confirmed before the midterm election. Uh, and it is pure power politics. I mean, the Democrats had made the same argument about waiting uh, mm -hmm. when George W. Bush uh, had a pick just before an election. McConnell makes a distinction between an election <laughs> that's going to decide a president and an election that's going to describe decide a Senate. It's all nonsense. Yeah. It's pure power politics. Uh, whether he will succeed, um, I think, remains at least a slightly open question. Uh, the odds are, um, based upon who Trump has identified as the potential nominees, which have been vetted by the Federalist Society, um, someone very much in the conservative mold. And is it fair to, sorry to interrupt, is it fair to call Supreme Court justice conservative or liberal? I know they're chosen by conservatives or liberal, um, but, it, but it kind of brings up a whole new politicizing of of the court to, to even speak in those terms about justice. It ought not to be the mm -hmm. case. Regrettably, it is the mm -hmm. case. Um, there is very much an ideological orientation with respect to how um, the role of a justice um, is viewed. Uh, and with rare exceptions, um, justices vote for what their uh, ideology would suggest is the right policy income outcome uh, and and sometimes concoct rationales legal rationales for them it, it, it and you is see that conservative judges do that the same as uh, bush 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 v gore uh, uh, where a the republicans on the court um, halted uh, the process of voting in Florida, uh, in effect declaring George Bush uh, the winner, uh, had uh, a legal basis without foundation. Uh, there are mechanisms set up in the Constitution uh, for, for, for resolving uh, contested election outcomes, 
and the court, the Republicans on the court, short-circuited that process specified in the Constitution uh, in order to predetermine an outcome based upon an invented legal theory uh, about um, equal protection and in for each vote. Now, in my judgment, the liberals on the court do it far more frequently than the conservatives. And, and, and it's terribly distressing to me because I've always thought an independent judiciary was an important component of our system of government and the protection of liberty that it's supposed to provide. Mm -hmm. And I no longer have confidence um, that the court plays that, that role. So I, so I do think it's fair to, to describe justices as falling in a conservative or liberal camp. Um, given the role that the Federalist Society has played in vetting um, Trump's potential nominees and the enthusiasm that Trump received as a result of the Gorsuch uh, nomination, I think you're likely to see someone in that mold, highly likely. Now, there may be some departing Republican senators who aren't necessarily uh, enthralled with the idea of there being a completely uh, judicially conservative, uh, rock-solid um, majority on the court. You mean like Corker and Flake? Or? Um, well, Flake uh, supports judicial conservatives. Um, thinking more like Susan Collins, gotcha. Bob Corker. There may be there may be others. So, so there may be a desire to try to force another um, Anthony Kennedy-like uh, justice. On the other hand, there are some conservative Democrats that are running for re-election, uh, conservative in, in states in that state, Trump carried yeah. and that uh, was, by and large that was margins. The, that was one of the biggest things that caused a lot of otherwise, you know, maybe never Trump conservatives to vote for him is that what was at stake the supreme court was which uh was a huge argument for people it's like well yeah you have this this that and that but the supreme court you know so it's hard to see a lot of them you know flake or people in the swing states to to swing that opposite well, well, side and i think there will be some some democrats running in conservative states right, that right. trump carried uh that might be uh, might feel the political pressure uh, to support whomever uh, Trump nominates. So my guess is McConnell succeeds, but I don't think it is a, um, I don't think it's a cinch. And you don't think it's a cinch that it would be like, maybe those hesitations brings whoever gets chosen to be more on the centrist side. I think that's more possible or no. No, I, I, I think that, that Trump will nominate a, um, Judicially doctrinaire conservative. Mm -hmm. um, that that's that's what he promised. Yeah. Uh, he's he's developed a list through the Federalist Society. Uh, he has said that he will choose from someone on that list. And do you kind of a last uh, closing point here? Do you do you think that uh, what's at stake? What some of the, during the debates about this? Uh, one of my frustrations was that um, Clinton. You know, when talking about, and even Clinton during the campaign, even Schumer, when he was, you know, making his statement, 
when the seat went open, you know, they talk about specific cases. They talk about Roe v. Wade, possibly an overturn. They talk about, um, you know, income inequality. And they don't even use the word like constitution. And maybe that's just the politicizing of it on both sides. Um, so, you know, in an ideal world, we're talking about, oh, they're, they're going to uphold the constitution. You want to have someone who's upholding the constitution and not, you know, legislating from the bench or whatever. Um, but that's the big fear is that this, this appointment will overturn perhaps, you know, something like a Roe v. Wade in the future. Um, I don't think that LGBTQ uh, rights are in, are in jeopardy, but possibly that could be challenged at the state level. Uh, do you think that those fears are, uh, are valid, that a Roe v. Wade could potentially be overturned or, or that we see a radical shift? The other fear is that if the Republicans retain control, now you've got President Trump with the, you know, with the Republican Congress and a conservative Supreme Court. Um, any What's your response to all those kind of uh, fears that the it, liberal side has? It, it is a, a uh, valid concern from their perspective uh, that uh, if someone like a Gorsuch re- replaces Kennedy, uh, that some of those decisions will be reconsidered and overturned. Um, I think that there's a very good chance that they will not. Um, there is a respect for uh, stare decisis, uh, the notion that you want stability in the courts and you don't want to be overturning pres- precedents. Uh, Roe v. Wade is decided in the 1970s. It's been around for a very, very long time. Uh, John Roberts, I think, in particular, would be reluctant to willy-nilly be uh, reversing uh, course on these things. Uh, And there's an interesting historical precedent. Uh, William Rehnquist was probably the most conservative chief justice um, that the courts ever had. He thought that Miranda was wrongly decided. Um, The um, ruling that said that um, someone who's accused of a crime has to be read their rights. If they're not read their rights, then anything they say subsequently, any confession they make, uh, is inadmissible. Um, after many years, that came up for re-review, and Rehnquist uh, actually voted uh, to retain the Miranda rule because of stare decisis and the view that the court needs to provide continuity Stability, yeah. uh, in terms of the legal rules that it imposes on the rest of society. And I think that will weigh heavily on uh, John Roberts, um, probably less so on some of the other judges. Uh, but remember that Roberts, not Kennedy, was the swing vote that upheld Obamacare. Um, Kennedy was prepared to vote that Obamacare was uh, a, a improper regulation uh-huh. of interstate commerce. And Roberts is the one that rescued it on, on the notion that it was... Um, a tax and and not a fee. <laughs> so uh, I, I think Roberts will want to steer the, the court away from that. Okay. Now, um, the reality is, is that the liberals have captured the uh, district court bench. They've largely captured the court of appeals. 
So most of the decisions that get handed down these days uh, reflect a liberal orientation. The U.S. Supreme Court has to decide of all those cases uh, which ones they're going to consider and which ones they're uh-huh. going to re- reverse. So in reality, I think what occurs from our court system, even if you've got a highly conservative Supreme Court, uh, will favor the liberals more than it will favor the conservatives. Trump is appointing a lot of district court judges and court of appeal judges, so you, you might see a more balancing of that. But right now, given the limited number of cases that the U.S. Supreme Court can consider and the fact that liberals win uh, at the other levels of the court more often than not, um, I, I, I think that the concern of having a conservative court that's going to overturn liberal gains, particularly uh-huh. ones that are earned legislatively, yeah. uh, is uh, overwrought. Now, on the other hand, I don't think you'll be looking to the court to, to do something like decide that the Constitution protects gay marriage when the states haven't all voted right. uh, to permit that. Right. All right, let's finish with this. You think the Suns are going to win the NBA championship next year? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, I've kind of, I've kind of dropped out of um, following professional basketball. So you didn't watch but, the NBA awards show? But I'll show? be surprised. I did not watch the so NBA awards show. This is show. the funniest part to me. The guy who won Coach of the Year, did you hear about that? No. So the guy who won Coach of the Year was fired from his job this year. <laughs> yeah, I did read so that. So that shows you how just kind of – I think the NBA coaching circuit is just crazy. I mean, it's just a carousel, people flipping. But, yeah, guy guy wins the NBA coach the year, gets fired, now is not a, on a new team. <laughs> NBA coaching for you. Um, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. This is the Political Notebook podcast. Um, subscribe to us on iTunes or any podcasting app.